Ladies and gentlemen, tonight the Columbia Workshop offers as its 36th production in a series devoted to experimental radio, Carl Chopek's famous play of the machine men, R.U.R. Back in the late 1930s, American radio listeners lent a new word. Time. Robot. The future. Rossum's Universal Robots. The play, Rossum's Universal Robots, written by Czech playwright Carol Chopek, imagined a future where machines do humans' work. What did young Rossum do? He invented a worker with a minimum amount of requirements. He rejected men and made a robot. Mechanically, they are more perfect than we are. They have enormously developed intelligence. But they have no soul. Chapek used an old Slavic word, robota, meaning something like forced labor to describe these machines, translated into English as robot. How do you know they have no soul? Have you ever seen what a robot looks like inside? No, I haven't. Very neat, very simple, everything in flawless order, an engineer's product, more perfect than a product of nature. The robots rebel and eliminate their creators, destroying the human race. But not before two robots become sentient and fall in love. It's a story whose variations became the stuff of science fiction throughout the 20th century. In this century, sentient robots haven't taken over quite yet. But artificial intelligence is becoming smarter, faster, and changing the way we live. We're on the cusp of our next great era as a species. One of the most frontier and potentially revolutionary technology in computer science. Machine intelligence is here. The fears Chapek conjured up in his play haven't gone away. Plenty of people see the potential of AI, but still ask, are we building this tech faster than we can control it? This is Tectonic. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times. We're back with a new five-part season. This time, we're asking whether the promise of artificial intelligence outweighs its risks. Powerful AI systems are already shaping our economies, societies, and lives. Machine learning is running our internet search engines, opening up pathways for medical research, delivering hyper-fast trading programs on financial markets, and transforming the way that wars are fought. But delegating so much decision-making to machines raises dilemmas. Should we be feeding them all our data? Are we unwittingly embedding human biases in them? And does AI technology really live up to the hype? I'll be trying to answer all these questions along with a team of FT reporters and experts. Is AI going to work for us? Or might it run amok, a little like the Czech robots of a century ago? AI grabbed the headlines in the 90s when a brilliant man needed a challenge. He dazzled his parents with chess moves at the age of six and became the youngest world chess champion in history at age 22. He is now Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, needed something new. In 1996, he took on an IBM-built supercomputer named Deep Blue. And Kasparov won. You have to win the game, you have to dominate the game, and you have to dominate your opponent. But a year later, the Grandmaster and the machine met again. In the sixth and final game, Kasparov placed his head into his hands. Whoa. Deep blue, Kasparov. 
after the move, C4 has resigned. The match is suddenly over just like that. D Blue has won the match. After only 19 moves, the contest was over. Kasparov was shaken and furious, accusing IBM of building a machine that was specifically programmed to counter his playing style. And I personally assure you, everybody here, that if Deep Blue will start playing competitive chess, I personally guarantee you, I'll torn it in pieces. Within the narrow bounds of the rules of chess, a computer had outthought a human. I was working in Moscow at the time of Kasparov's defeat, and still remember the shock that humanity's champion could be beaten by a machine. If a computer could triumph at a game regarded as the pinnacle of human intelligence, what else could it achieve? I was particularly intrigued by how a computer that was brilliant at one thing, playing chess, was also terrible at another, moving the pieces. AI could work well in narrow domains, but could it ever acquire a more generalized intelligence? By modern standards, Deep Blue counts as a very primitive technology, an expert rules-based system that operated like a $10 million alarm clock, in Kasparov's dismissive phrase. Since then, AI has made startling progress and can now beat humans at almost every game we play. Good afternoon. I am today's referee. The match will be in Chinese rules. In 2016, a system called AlphaGo defeated a master of the fiendishly difficult game of Go. I can't believe what I see right now. To win the match, a London-based startup, DeepMind, pioneered the use of a technique known as deep learning. It used neural networks, which mimic some aspects of how the human brain works. Trained on vast amounts of data, such networks can recognize and replicate highly complex patterns. AlphaGo's success stunned the AI world. In particular, it made a deep impression in China, where they've been playing Go for more than 2,000 years. It's woven into the history there. Go is mentioned in the writings of Confucius, and some legends have it, an ancient emperor invented the game to discipline his wayward son. Later, Chinese generals used Go to hone their military strategy. So the triumph of Western technology in the ancient game became something of a Sputnik moment, triggering massive Chinese investment in AI technology, in the same way that the US scrambled to catch up with the Soviet Union after it launched the Sputnik satellite in 1957. AlphaGo actually came up with a creative new idea in the game of Go that obviously humans have been playing for thousands of years now. Demis Hassabis is a tech evangelist, a teenage chess prodigy who had a glittering academic career before co-founding that startup, DeepMind. We hadn't thought of some of these ideas, and that's in a relatively constrained domain you know, of a board game, albeit the most complex one humanity's ever invented. And that is very suggestive that these types of algorithms and systems may be able to find insights or find intuitions, if you like, that um, even human experts haven't necessarily found or noticed. According to Hasabis, this is only the early stages of AI's true potential. It is epoch-defining technology in the way that say, the internet or fire or electricity, these kind of things were. I expect there to be 
you know, dozens of exciting, hugely impactful breakthroughs in all uh, sorts of domains. Neural networks are powering many of the latest AI systems, identifying patterns in data to recognize images, voices and faces. AI-powered technology is also learning to predict the weather and financial market movements, drive cars and read x-rays. In a visionary paper written in 1965, one of the pioneers of AI, Jack Good, talked about the possibility of creating ultra-intelligent machines. This is him reflecting on that groundbreaking paper. The question, for example, would arise of the social repercussions of having such a machine. Unemployment, perhaps, because the machine would construct robots and so on for doing manual work in addition to all the scientists becoming unemployed. The question then that I would address to the ultra-intelligent machine was how to cure these difficulties. In Good's phrase, such ultra-intelligent machines would be the last invention that humans would ever need to make because they would then invent everything else for us and even help respond to the social issues they themselves caused. Demis Asabis is part of the tradition of blue-sky AI thinkers, but he's also pulled inspiration from games. That's how Hasabis started on a small scale. Tiny, in fact, coding intelligence into little virtual people riding pixelated roller coasters. As a precocious teenager in the 90s, he built video games. So the, probably the most famous game I worked on was called Theme Park, which um, involved a simulation of an amusement park and thousands of little people would come in uh, to your amusement park and play on your rides and buy things from the shops and so on. And one of my first jobs in the industry was to um, build the intelligence for these little people. And so they would react in interesting ways to the way you played it. And once I saw how gamers reacted to this uh, AI and this simulation and how much fun they were having out of it, that kind of got me going down this direction. You know, how amazing could it be with AI if that was just a small little sample of what AI could do? And in time, he came to see that potential as more or less limitless. His crazily ambitious goal, as he put it, was to solve the mystery of intelligence and then use that knowledge to solve everything else. Often, if you're interested in the big questions like, you know, what is life? What, you know, what's the meaning of life? All these kind of things. Well, how did the universe start? What is consciousness? Um, you'd normally study physics. Um, but I realised that it felt like in the last, say, second half of last century, not that much advances had happened as compared to, say, the early part of, the, 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 of, of, of last century with Einstein and Niels Bohr and all these people discovering the fundamentals of physics. And it felt to me like we needed some extra intellectual horsepower uh, as humanity to be able to maybe understand the answers to some of the questions we were posing. And that led me to AI as potentially the ultimate tool to help us as scientists understand the world around us. He co-founded DeepMind a decade ago as something between a research lab and a company. At that time, AI wasn't undergoing the same hype it is today. At first, Demis and his co-founders struggled to get investment for the company. But they stuck to their soaring goal, the goal of building a machine that can think like a human thinks, but even more powerfully. That goal remains far off and may even be impossible. But DeepMind's progress has been impressive. Google took notice and bought the company in 2014. 
DeepMind's latest discovery has started to show the incredible real-life uses of neural networks. This gives you such excitement about the way science works, about how you can never see exactly or even approximately what's going to happen next. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. AlphaFold is a project that aims to predict uh, the structure of proteins. A lot of work over the last century has gone into finding structure of protein, and it's a very painstaking sort of process. That's Pushmeet Kohli, head of AI for science at DeepMind. Last year, AI-powered software written by Kohli's team solved one of nature's greatest riddles, how to predict the 3D structure of proteins to understand how they work. It's a root node problem, and this is one of the things that when we uh, talk about um, uh, scientific problems, um, it's a problem that unlocks so many different areas, and which is why uh, Demis and, and our team has, uh, have chosen it. Each individual protein structure can take years to predict. AlphaFold replaced that difficult lab work with just a few minutes of computer modeling. Sometimes it might take a PhD student, uh, a whole PhD, to actually even think about one structure. AlphaFold could fundamentally change biological research and could speed us towards treatments for things like Alzheimer's. What we are seeing is already sort of scientists uh, leveraging their, the, the predictions of AlphaFold in finding out structures of very important proteins that are relevant for um, many sort of diseases which, uh, uh, which have unknown sort of structure. AI in healthcare is something people get really excited about. There are big hopes for automated diagnoses that can allow more people to get help faster, groundbreaking genetic research, or new ways to fight disease. These are all topics that AI researchers are working on. But this takes us into one of the areas where even as the innovation spits out exciting results, it stumbles too. An investigation in 2017 ruled a British hospital gave DeepMind data on kidney patients, which should have been protected by privacy laws. Demis Asabe says more needs to be done to communicate the benefits of medical AI. You know, the privacy is a massively important question as of, you know, in any domain, but of course, especially when it comes to healthcare. And I think what government needs to do is, you know, make clear the rule of the, ro- the, the rules of the road. I think in a lot of cases, um, the public just doesn't understand what the trade-offs are or what the consent is for and so on. Beyond just medical data, AI is facing public pushback on multiple fronts. As machine brains inch towards being more like ours, researchers worry that training deep learning systems on massive amounts of data generated by humans like YouTube or internet text, is coding our prejudices into them too. One way AI shows these biases 
is when it talks to us, which it's getting much better at doing. Good morning, John. Last year, I got the chance to interact with a new language generation model that amazed the artificial intelligence world. My name is GPT-3. GPT-3 was designed by the research company OpenAI. For fun, I asked a developer to prompt GPT-3 to write me a biography. Well, what I wished my bio was. We asked GPT-3 to reimagine me as a Star Wars hero. John Thornhill was already a decorated war hero when he joined the Rebel Alliance. He was experienced with the blaster and intuitive when it came to the art of war. But his true skill lay with his squadron, making him a steadfast leader with the spirit of a true rebel. I can bullseye womp rats too. Language generation systems are becoming more commonplace, but few can match the power of GPT-3, which has been trained on pretty much all the text on the internet. Some have called it unsafe, others just underwhelming. GPT-3 may sound plausible, but is what it's doing really thinking? Even the machine itself says it has its own limitations. To be clear, I'm not a person. I'm not self-aware. I am not conscious. I can't feel pain. I don't enjoy anything. I'm a cold, calculating machine designed to simulate human response and to predict the probability of certain outcomes. Even so, the trouble might be that in learning our language, it's also picking up humanity's dark side. Some users, like Facebook's Jerome Pacenti, enticed it to spew out racist and sexist language to expose its flaws. Women have such a tough time being women. They have periods, do the lifting, and always have to ask for directions. People worry about this kind of bias permeating AI. People like Margaret Mitchell, who until recently worked for Google, she wasn't on the DeepMind team, but on another project looking at the ethics of AI. She says the industry has a systemic problem. Well, it's not the ethics. It's, uh, it's the lack of consideration of ethics that <laughs> worries me, I suppose. Mitchell was dismissed from Google shortly after her colleague Timnit Gebru abruptly left after accusations the company had suppressed her research. We spoke up a lot about uh, racial equity gender equity, um, we sort of didn't let it go that there was inherent racism and sexism. We were constantly trying to make it better. Um, and that really annoys people, and people find it confrontational. Mitchell says her work brought to light vital and uncomfortable realities about AI. But she had spent years of her career wrestling with these issues. To understand, we need to go back to Mitchell's early years in AI. My background is in natural language processing, um, which is, you know, dealing with text, basically, um, and also computer vision. Um, I was mixing the two together to do image captioning, so generating descriptions of an image. And um, once I started seeing the descriptions, once, you know, the technology started working, my immediate thought was, oh, no, because it was making errors. Long before she was at Google, while she was still training AI systems, Mitchell started to see some unsettling problems in machine learning. One example stood out in particular. I had been teaching my system to tell stories. How it worked was that you put in a sequence of images and it would spit out a story. And I put in a sequence of images that showed 
this massive blast as seen from a window, a shot of someone looking over, taking a picture, seeing this blast, and you see that it's also on the news in the background. And it looks at these pictures and it says, you know, we're in an apartment and and it looks at the explosion and it says, it's a very beautiful view. It's amazing. So it sees this horrible, potentially life-harming blast and it thinks this is good. The system she was working on weren't just learning shapes and colors. They were projecting values and getting them badly mixed up. My technology can't, can't physically blow up something. <laughs> but it could decide that a situation that is very harmful is one that isn't harmful and then make the wrong decisions based on that. So for example, you could imagine uh, a system that directs people to go to a building that's about to fall over because it doesn't see the building falling over as a problem. When I asked Hasabis about Mitchell's concerns about AI ethics, he said he couldn't speak to Mitchell's case specifically, but in his view, it's the human misapplications of AI, not the AI itself, that poses the most ethical risk. Uh, I see quite a lot of use cases that, frankly, should just never be happening with current AI systems. Such as what? Like, for example, um, you hear about in the US it being used for uh, parole hearings or judicial hearings. It's just, that's just, in my view, a totally ridiculous application of AI, which it's nowhere near ready for uh, and probably should never be used for. But for Mitchell, the issue she was encountering on the back end of AI systems earlier in her career started to feel like a serious problem with the field itself. She turned her focus away from the task of making systems more accurate or more powerful and tried to think more deeply about how and why they did what they did. That's how she ended up at Google, where she said she had hoped to start a new chapter working on the ethics team. When I started at Google, I started looking very deeply into evaluation methods for different kinds of issues. Um, the way to evaluate in terms of different fairness concerns, ethical concerns, was really not well established. So I, I, I started diving into that. While at Google, one area she started working on was exactly the kind of problem that OpenAI's GPT-3 program had encountered. It shows tendencies towards racism and sexism in the language it's so good at generating. The reason it's there is that AI systems train themselves to do things like speak using massive amounts of data, in this case, text on the internet, which, turns out, can be a pretty unpleasant place. We can think of ways that people talk that are, <laughs> that are racist, and that's in data that gets scraped, and then systems will just learn that. So now the question becomes, how do we train things in a way that it won't pick up that kind of racism? That problem, bias in AI language generation, was one of several raised by Mitchell and her research partner, Timnit Gebru, along with several other collaborators, in a paper they wrote last year. Google says its auditors decided the paper did not meet their bar for publication, and Gebru left the company. She told Wired magazine that she felt that she had been censored. Mitchell was devastated. I had a lot of anxiety. Um, I hadn't been sleeping. You know, they they had um, fired uh, my my partner. Um, and you know, anyone who's been in an organization where you have a partner that you work with, 
um, know that this isn't just like another employee. There, there's someone you build a trust relationship with. There's someone you sort of define your own path with. She claims her concerns were ignored by Google. I just would send these long emails explaining, you know, issue number one, issue number two, trying to communicate to Google leadership that this is a problem. And there was just no sense that it was getting through, that anyone recognized there was an issue at all. Google then conducted an investigation into Mitchell's work and fired her, saying that she had moved files outside the company, breaking their code of conduct and security procedures. It was the culmination of months of uncertainty. I was hopeful (laughs) that they would uh, see the value in me. Um, I was disappointed that it seems they decided I, I was worthless. I had no value. Mitchell has long advocated for more diversity in tech, contending that more diverse viewpoints will result in less biased systems. Or that diverse eyes would see the industry's blind spots. She saw her dismissal as a sign Google wasn't interested in that argument. It suggests to me that even in a simple case of knowing that there is a blind spot, the approach isn't to fill out that blind spot. The approach is to uh, try and suppress the blind spot or something like that. Um, And that's terrible because that means we get worse and worse at, at racism and sexism in our systems, not better. Mitchell and Gabriel are academics. They wrote an academic paper. But this isn't just an abstract question. AI-powered systems are already influencing many areas of our lives. Deciding who gets bank loans, auto-completing our sentences online, calculating our insurance premiums, and more. They are embedding values in code. The kind of AI that Google wants to shout about, accelerating research into existential questions, is an exciting prospect that might lead to the full flourishing of humanity, as Hassabis puts it. But bias in the system is here, now, with real-world consequences. We're still a long way from sentient robots on a mission to destroy the human race, as Chapek envisaged. But AI is developing fast and being deployed, mostly invisibly, in all kinds of decision-making systems with huge societal impact. However great I believe AI's promise to be, and I believe it could be enormous, I cannot deny that intelligent machines are already causing real-life problems today. Wisely used, AI can help us make better decisions. But humans should always remain in the loop. Or perhaps we're playing with something we don't fully understand yet. The promises and perils of AI are something that FT reporters bump up against more and more often, whether they're covering conflict or finance or the developing world. Join us over the next four episodes for four stories about how the technology is being used today. In two weeks, we will be back here looking into how AI is helping doctors make sense of life and death decisions. You're working for about 10 to 12 hours at a time. And so you see about 20 to 30, sometimes up to 40 patients in that span of time. And you're making decisions like, does this person have a heart attack? Should I do this test? What is going to happen to this patient if I send them home? And those are the kinds of things where I think algorithms have a huge potential to help. 
You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times in London with me, John Thornhill. Alice Fordham is our senior producer. Josh GD, our assistant producer. Aluwa Kemi Aladasui and Liam Nolan are our development producers. Sound design and mixing were by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the executive producer for this series. And original scoring was composed by Metaphor Music.